You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, the program where we feature a number of the teachings of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. It is Holy Week, and so we are now focusing our energies on the passion of our Lord. And so on today's broadcast, we will have Bishop Sheen give one of his reflections that he shared on Good Friday back in 1977. And so may I encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. When our blessed Lord gathered his apostles about him the night of the Last Supper, He said that he was anxious to eat that Passover meal with them. And he then began to wash the feet of his disciples. So he took a basin of water, washed the feet of them all. Peter protested. Judas said nothing. But when our blessed Lord had finished the washing, he said to them, One of you is about to betray me. Ken said, Is it I, Lord? One said, is it I, Master? One said, Who is it, Lord? Who is it? Ten said, Is it I, Lord? In the presence of divinity, no one can be sure of his innocence. Judas said, Is it I, Master? We can call Jesus Lord only by the Spirit. We who believe in the divinity of Christ are so convinced by the Spirit which Christ sent us. Judas did not have the Spirit. So to our blessed Lord, he was only a master, like Buddha, or Confucius, or any guru of the day. John who was always close to the Lord and who leaned on his breast the night of the Last Supper was the one who said, Who is it? I believe, therefore, that the seating arrangement was a little bit different than what we see here in the painting of Leonardo da Vinci. Judas in this painting is the third on the right-hand side of our Lord with a money bag alongside of him. I think that Judas was on one side of our blessed Lord and John on the other. 
and Peter was next to John. We know where John was because he leaned on the breast of our Lord. Therefore, he had to be next to it. And I think that Judas, too, our Lord was anxious to save. And he said, sit here. And Peter on the other side of John, because what happens now is a conversation. It is a whispering, actually. When our Lord said, one of you is about to betray me, Peter, who's always curious, impulsive, dashing in where others hesitated, Peter says to John, ask him who he is. Now, he could not have been next to our Lord, otherwise he would have had to lean in front of our Lord to speak to him. But if he was next to John, he could say, ask him who it is. And then John turns to our Lord and says, who is it, Lord? Who is it? And our Lord says, it is the one whom I, to whom I will reach this bread after I have dipped it in the salt. This was the way of toasting. Did that dip bread into a sauce and then gave it to the one you were toasting? The implication being that those who ate the same bread were one body. So our blessed Lord dipped the bread into the sauce and gave it to Judas. So Judas had to be immediately near him. Because the others did not know what was going on. When Judas left, they thought he'd gone out to either give money to the poor or else to prepare for a Passover meal. They had not, were not sure that he was the one who was to betray our blessed Lord. And when our Lord gave him that toast, he said to him, what you do, do quickly. And Judas went out. And it was night. It is always night when we leave the Lord. Our blessed Lord now prepares for his last meal. But it's more than a meal. It is a memorial of his death. He used bread and wine because these were the two substances which traditionally nourish man. And in therefore using bread and wine, he was equivalently using a symbol of ourselves. He now prepares the new Passover. The old Passover was to celebrate the Jews leaving bondage in Egypt and coming into the promised land. The new covenant, the new exodus, the new Passover is passing from sin to union with God through Christ. Our Lord then says, I'm going to give you a memorial of my death. He then symbolized for them his death by the separate consecration of his bread and wine. He said, first, this is my body. Over the wine, this is my blood. Not this symbolizes, 
This is that separate consecration of bread and wine was like the tearing apart of blood from body, which is the way he would die on the cross the next day. And then he said, do this in memory of me. And every time we assist at Mass, we are watching the renewal of the death of Christ and incorporating our own death to his. That is the meaning of the Eucharist. There now comes something that is passed over very lightly, but I consider it as one of the most unusual verses in sacred scripture. Our Lord sang, the only recorded time in the life of our blessed Lord that he ever sang was the night he went out to his death. You leave the upper room, go down that hill, cross over the Kedron, go into the valley of Gethsemane. He takes with him three of his chosen disciples, three on whom he thought he could count. Peter, James, and John. They had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when his father inspired him to go on the journey to Calvary. And they are now invited to stay with him. And he says to them, watch and pray. Watch. Look out for the external environment. Pray. Keep in touch with heaven. Our Lord leaves the tree, walks into that garden of olives, strains at the place where he has his agony, was where the olives were pressed. And he was to have his life pressed out of him. He goes into the garden, the gospel says, about as far as a man could throw a stone. Curious way to measure distance. And he undergoes now a struggle. The struggle is between being a sin bearer for us and doing the Father's will. He is loaded now mentally with the guilt of all of our sins. No young man of about 33 wants to die. On the other hand, he is under an imperative. Seven times he used the word must in obedience to the Father's will. So he prays, Father, let this cup Pass from me. This cup of bearing the burden of all the sinful hearts of the world. Let it pass. 
The word cup is used 21 times in scripture. We very often use the cup, my cup runneth over. Only three times does it mean joy. All the other times it means judgment. And the cup then meant judgment. But he always added, after praying that the cup would pass, Father, not my will, but thine be done. He goes back three times and finds his disciples asleep. Worried men stay awake. Our Lord then said, could you not stay awake one hour with me? Have you no sense of crisis? I did not ask the other nine, but you. Just one hour, that's all. A holy hour during my agony. He goes back into the garden and now takes upon himself all of the sins of the world. This is very difficult to describe. We can understand pain. But we do not have a deep and profound sense of guilt. Animals do not suffer as much as we do. Because animals do not add up their sufferings and do not project them into the future. We do. For example, if we are suffering, we may say, oh, I have suffered from this now for six months. And we bring that six months up to the present second. And then we look forward to the future and we say, well, it may be a year before I'm healed. And we bring that year back. That is one of the reasons why when we visit the sick, we try to distract them. To break up that addition of the past, the present, and the future. Now our blessed Lord is not dealing here so much with pain. He's dealing with guilt and all the sin of the world. So he reaches back into the past for sin. All the sins that were ever committed in the past. Cain was there, purple in the sheet of his brother's blood. The abominations of Sodom and Gomorrah were there. The coarseness of the pagans, the irreverence of his own people, and all of these sins he brought up to the present moment. And then he looked into the future, saw all the sins that would ever rent Christ's mystical body. Sins too terrible to be mentioned, sins too awful to be named. Sins committed in the country that made all nature blush. Sins committed in the city, in the city's fetid atmosphere of sin. Sins of the old who should have passed the age of sinning. Sins of the young for whom the heart of Christ was tenderly pierced. Sin, 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 north, south, east and west, Samson-like, he pulls this all upon him and is crushed so much for the weight of it that the blood begins to pour from his body, forming on the olive roots 
the first red rosary of redemption. There's a noise outside. Sleeping apostles are awakened. Judas comes with a band of about 200. He says to the brigands whom he brought with him, I will give you a sign. He whom I shall kiss, that is he. Very hold of him. Why does he give a sign? Kiss him. Because he thought our Lord would be afraid. He'd go back into the olive grove. And he would have to go in there to hunt for him. And his brigands would not know who he was. And so he would give him a, a sign. A smack on the cheek. When we lose the Lord, we never know how he acts. The Lord came forward. And Judas reached out his arms and threw them around the Lord's neck. And the Greek word in the gospel is katephiline. He smothered him with kisses. Divinity is so sacred it is always betrayed by some sign of affection. And our Lord said, Friend, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Our blessed Lord is then led out of the Garden of Gethsemane under arrest. John followed rather closely. Peter follows far off. It is night, probably midnight. One thing is certain, the law courts will not be open. They are not allowed to be open at night. But they will be open. There are three worldly ways of looking at our blessed Lord. One, he is too divine for a corrupt religion. Secondly, he's too truthful for a pragmatic politics. And three, he's too pure for the sex maniacs. Each of these condemn our Lord to death. After his midnight arrest, the Sanhedrin called the meeting. They were not allowed to a meet at night. But this was a very unusual case. That meant that in a great semicircle sat 70 men plus one, the president, who was Caiaphas at the time, and his father-in-law, Annas. Now you can imagine with what great glee 
Annas must have seen our Lord brought into this courtroom. This is a religious trial, remember, not political. Because our blessed Lord had driven his five sons out of the temple. Now he was anxious to get revenge. The trial begins. Caiaphas says to the Lord, Tell us about your doctrine and your disciples. Why did he ask that question? He was insinuating that our blessed Lord was a kind of a revolutionist. And that what he was saying publicly was not his real doctrine. Now Caiaphas wanted to hear really what is your revolutionary philosophy. Who are your revolutionary followers? And our blessed Lord answered, You have heard what I have said, and my disciples have given testimony of me. Seeing that he could get no information from our blessed Lord concerning a revolution, Caiaphas now called witnesses. And the witnesses all testify concerning that word used in the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But they could not agree as to what he said. So there was no way of condemning our Lord on the testimony of witnesses. As a matter of fact, there was no reason why he should have been arrested in the first place. So Pilate now, I mean Caiaphas now, resorts to an oath. And every loyal Israelite was bound, bound to answer when that oath was invoked. Caiaphas said, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us Art thou the Christ, the Son of God? I am. And with that, Caiaphas reached over and picked up some ashes and sprinkled them on his head. In testimony that he had heard a blasphemy. And then reached down and took his priestly robes and rent them from bottom to top which he was bound to do whenever he heard a blasphemy. And he said he's blasphemed. He's guilty of death. One of the soldiers then struck our Lord on the cheek. Our Lord said, If I have spoken ill, give testimony of me. If good, then why do you strike me? That night he was subjected to punishment. They blindfolded him, asked him then to prophesy who struck him. Hit him with sticks and amused themselves until morning when the civil courts opened. So now they bring our blessed Lord is a prisoner to Pilate. Remember, Pilate is the representative of the Roman governor, which is an authority. 
And the Jews had not the power to kill that belonged to the Romans. They would not enter into the house of Pilate because that would have profaned them. So Pilate goes out to them and seeing the prisoner says, what charge do you bring against this man? They said, if he were not a criminal, we would not have brought him to you. Pilate said, then judge him by your law. Now, when there's a change from one court to another, there's a continuity of charges. The second court does not take up another charge which the first court considered. Will they condemn our Lord of blasphemy? Of course not. What did this pagan Pilate care about their blasphemy? So they changed the charge. And they bring up three charges. They have found him perverting the nation, refusing to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he is a king. Pilate knew they delivered him up for envy. Did not take the first two charges seriously. Maybe he had heard our Lord saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But that third charge, that he was a king, that concerned the Roman government. So Pilate then brings our blessed Lord into his secret chambers. Are you a king? I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. For if it were, my disciples would have striven to have released me. Pilate was satisfied that he was not a revolutionist. Went out to the crowd, said, I find no charge against him. They said he perverted the nation beginning at Galilee. Beginning at Galilee? That's another court. That is not my jurisdiction. That belongs to Herod Antipas, Galilee. And Herod Antipas was in Jerusalem at that particular time for the Passover. So Pilate was very happy. He could get our Lord off his hands. He was in the Galilean jurisdiction. Therefore, he would go to Herod. Now, Herod is the sensualist. He had abandoned his own wife, who was the daughter of King Aretas of Persia, and had stolen Herodiad, the wife of his brother Philip, and brought her to live in his great palace at Machias. John the Baptist had condemned him, and then Herod had murdered John the Baptist. Our Lord is now standing before a man who had defied every grace that God had ever given him. Sensualists kill the spirit. 
This man who was totally given over to the flesh was impossible of understanding the spiritual world. For the flesh losteth against the spirit. But Herod was very glad to see him. Hoped he'd work a few miracles. Maybe change water into wine. He asked our Lord many questions. Our Lord refused to answer. When grace is abused too often, it ceases. Now Pilate and Herod were enemies. They had quarreled probably over the pool of Siloam and the tower that was being built. And I had not spoken for years. Pilate had sent him to Herod. Now maybe this is reconciliation. So Herod decides to play a joke. In Rome, all the political candidates wore white robes. Toga Candida. Toga Candida meant candidate. So he robed our Lord in a white robe, sent him back to Pilate. This was a joke. Here's your king, look at him. He's a ridiculous figure. Now Pilate has him back on his hands. And Pilate said, well, I will give you a choice. I will take one of your criminals, Barabbas, let you choose between the two. So he brought out Barabbas, who was a revolutionist, and our blessed Lord. And he said, which of the two will you that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Finally, could hardly believe his ears. So he said, well, I'll scourge him and let him go. He said to our Lord, why have you come? Our Lord said to give testimony of the truth. And they who are of the truth hear my voice. Pilate said, what is truth? The fragments. What is truth? He took our Lord out again before the mob. Look at the man. Look at him. They said that they did, he did not condemn him to death, they would report him to Caesar. That was enough. Pilate did not want to lose his position as procurator. He would not be reported to death. To Caesar. And so our blessed Lord is told, I will deliver you over to them. Go to the cross. Here he is condemned on contradictory charges. He's too divine. He's too human. And condemned on contradictory charges, the only fitting punishment is the sign of contradiction which is the cross. And our blessed Lord is led to his death. Condemned by religion, condemned by the state. He is too divine for some religious. He's too truthful 
were some statesmen. He's too pure for the aromaniacs. So he must die. In the course of the life of our blessed Lord, he was driven out of five cities. He had no place for his birth. He was driven out of his own hometown, Nazareth. He was driven out of the land of the Gadarenes. He was driven out of Jerusalem. And this is the most important of all the cities from which he was exiled. Made to carry a cross. And he comes to the place of execution, which was the place of the skull. Tradition has it that it was the very place where Adam was buried. Christ being the new Adam will begin the new humanity. The cross is the most absurd thing in the world, of and by itself. Because the vertical bar of life is contradicted by the horizontal bar of death. That makes it absurd. It is the symbol, indeed, of the incomprehensible. But if you put someone on it, then it's no longer an absurdity. Because he was put on it, teaches that death is the condition of life. That the Good Friday leads to the Easter Sunday. That we die to the lower part of ourselves to rise to the spiritual life. And when he came to the cross as a kind of pulpit from which he would deliver his last sermon, it was the fulfillment of an old symbol or type. Centuries before, when the Israelites had disobeyed God, they were bitten by poisonous serpents. And they went to Moses and asked to be healed. Moses spoke to God, and God said, Make a serpent of brass, one that looks exactly like that snake that poisoned you and hang it on the crotch of a tree. And everyone who looks at that serpent of brass will be healed. Now there's absolutely nothing in looking at a brass serpent on the crotch of a tree that will cure snake bite. Why did God suggest that? Because it was to be a type of himself. And when our blessed Lord came, he used that in speaking to Nicodemus. He said, as Moses lifted the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So as that serpent of brass did not have poison inside of it, but looked as if it were poisonous, so our blessed Lord would look as if he were guilty but would bear and have no sin. 
And as all who looked at that serpent of brass would be healed of the poison, so all who would look at our Lord on the cross would be healed of the poison of sin. Why didn't our Lord use a dead serpent or a live serpent as the symbol instead of a symbol of brass? It was because that would have represented us as sinners. The brass serpent did not belong to the serpent kingdom. Our Lord does not belong to the human kingdom. He's God. And therefore he can bring to us the healing which man cannot bring. There are three types of figures who gather beneath it. I believe these represent the three that are always about Christ. There are only three possible attitudes that we can take. Apathy, antipathy, and sympathy. And as a reminder of how the world would live, there were three groups who gathered about the cross. First of all, there was apathy. The soldiers who crucified, who shook dice for his garment. They were close enough to the good Lord to throw their dice at him. They represent the indifference of the world. That is, Kennedy wrote a poem comparing Christ coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England and going to Calvary. That when Jesus came to Calvary, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days. The human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. He would not hurt a heretic. He only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. The winter rained that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street without a soul to see, then Jesus crouched against the wall and sighed for Calvary. It was more endurable than the indifference of men. Apathy, antipathy. Those who insulted him, mocked him, challenged, ridiculed. Sympathy. The soldier who reached a sponge to his dry lips, his mother, John, Magdalene. 
to love and a few other chosen friends. There will always be those who are devoted to the Lord and who have a sympathetic heart. Now once nailed to the cross, he begins what is often known as his seven last words. These I have talked about for 49 years on Good Friday. And I'm not talking about them this year. I've given you the whole story of the Passion. But I will take out of his seven words a few that refer to different classes of people who need to be reminded of the word. First of all, our Lord spoke to those who hate it. For there are an abundance of the world in the world who cannot endure his name. And they hold a challenge to it. They said, if you're the son of God, Come down from that cross. Come down and we'll believe. Sure they will believe. They'll believe anything. Just no cross. No mortification. No self-denial. This is not weakness to hang on the cross. This is obedience to the law of sacrifice. If he came down, he never would have saved us. It's human to come down. It's divine to hang there. So there are many who say, I'll believe anything. I'll believe that he's divine. I will believe in his church. I will believe in his pontiff. Only no cross. No sacrifice. That's all. George Bernard Shaw said, it's that that bars the way. Sure it bars the way. Bars the way to hell. And to them our blessed Lord merely prayed for forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is not ignorance that saves. Or rather, it is not wisdom that saves. It is ignorance. If we knew what we were doing when we crucified the Lord, we would never be saved. It is only the ignorance of what we do when we crucify as we come within the pale of the hearing of the cry for years. So not only those who are hateful did he address, but those who suffer justly. Justly. Now there were two thieves crucified on either side of him. They both blasphemed at the beginning. One of them had a change of heart. The thief on the left said, if you're the son of God, save yourself and save up. 
He wanted to come down from the cross to go on with the dirty business of thieving. Many will not lead better lives because a miracle is worked. But the thief on the right hand side is the representative of those people who suffer after an evil life. And he took that attitude. The thief said to his brother thief on the other side of the Savior, he said, we suffer justly for our crime. This man has done no wrong. In other words, the vicissitudes and trials of life become an expiation for sin. And if the Lord at the end of days brings pain, it's to smooth the way to paradise. And so it was for the thief on the right, because our blessed Lord said to him, This day you shall be with me in paradise. And the thief died with thee, for he stole paradise. Paradise can be stolen again. Then he spoke to the atheist, to the communist, to the agnostic, to the unbelievers, to the fallen away, all of whom live an inner kind of hell. Particularly those who have had the faith and lost it. Hell does not begin in the next world. It begins here. Now how, for example, will any atheist, an agnostic, an infidel, ever be saved if the Lord on the cross does not take means to redeem them? So our blessed Lord now undertakes to suffer that loneliness, isolation, and separation from God that all atheists feel. He permitted himself, therefore, to be without any divine consolation, to walk on the very brink of hell. To tell you what it is to be damned. And at that moment when the sun hid its light, almost to shame to shed its light upon the crime of deicide, our Lord now in that darkness of the very day put on this darkness of soul and in reparation for all the atheists cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you abandoned me? That makes it possible for Breshnev to save his soul. If Breshnev hears that cry, the Lord felt the hell of Voltaire, of Camus, of Sark, Julian the Apostle, 
of all who deny their Lord. And from that day on, they need only cry to him. It is pain that they must cry. So there are not only those who lead evil lives who suffer, but there are also those who lead good lives who suffer. And at the foot of the cross, there are good lives and the best of lives, particularly the Blessed Mother. We sometimes ask, well, why should I suffer? What evil have I ever done? What evil did the Blessed Mother ever do? What evil did our Lord do? Remember that we are called to share in the redemption of our blessed Lord. See, Paul says, I fill up in my place the sufferings that are wanting to the passion of Christ. Didn't Christ suffer enough? Yes. But for what sake? For the sake of his body, which is the church. So that as the centuries go on, we continue the redemption of our Lord. Our Blessed Lady was summoned at the very moment of his birth to share in his suffering, and when she brought the divine child to Simeon, Simeon said, A sword shall pierce your heart too. You brought your child into the world without pain. And everyone else in this world who becomes a brother of Christ and a child of Mary causes agony to that mother. And our blessed mother shared, shared secondarily in the redemption of our blessed Lord by bearing us, her children, spiritually. That is why we can call her mother. No one takes our Lord's life away from him. He lays it down of himself. And so there's a rupture of the heart and a rapture of love. He commends his soul to the Heavenly Father and dies. But something happens. This is the moment of eternity of the Passover in the great temple of Jerusalem. This enormous veil, about 60 feet wide, and about that high, filled with golden cherubim at either end, purple, gold, woven into this curtain, is about now to be pierced. Once a year, the high priest takes the blood, the blood of a lamb, with which the congregation will be sprinkled, and passes through that veil and goes into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year is he allowed there. Three or feet for the people. Great and rare honor it is to be before the Holy of Holies and to intercede for all. Just as the high priest is about to enter that veil, it's rent. Rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top, because a man could do that. Rent from top to bottom. 
And for the first time in the whole history of Israel, the Holy of Holies is revealed. The people see it and scream. And at that second, a soldier ran a lance into the side of our blessed Lord, into, as sacred scripture says, the curtain of his flesh, piercing the veil, revealing the holy of holies. Heaven is open. We are saved. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining us for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. We hope you enjoyed this Lenten reflection by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, and we would like to thank the good folks at FultonSheen.com for making these quality recordings available to us today. You can visit their website at www.FultonSheen.com. And there you can download for free the famous Bishop Sheen phone app. There are available for your purchase well over 300 audio recordings that Bishop Sheen gave over a 50-year period. And so I'd encourage you to support them by visiting www.fultonsheen.com. I want to encourage you to tell a friend about Radio Maria and to share this show with them. I'd like to end our program by praying the prayer for the canonization of Fulton Sheen. And so I'd ask you to join me, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, source of all holiness, you raise up within the Church in every age men and women who serve with heroic love and dedication. You have blessed your Church through the life and ministry of your faithful servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. He has written and spoken well of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and was a true instrument of the Holy Spirit in touching the hearts of countless people. If it be according to your will, for the honor and glory of the Most Holy Trinity, and for the salvation of souls, we ask you to move the Church to proclaim him a saint, and we ask this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.